passage this morning. Uh, if you didn't bring your own Bibles, the passage that we're looking at today is printed in your bulletins or on page 894 of those blue pew Bibles that are in front of you. John chapter 8, where we are and where we're starting in this thematically continues with the questions that we saw in John chapter 7. Do you remember those questions from last week? The questions that were swirling around Jesus are common everyday questions that Jesus himself was answering at an incredibly deep level. The questions were, where did you come from? And where are you going? And who are you? And as I read through this text today, you're going to see those same things come right back up again. Jesus returned to those and Jesus build upon the very same things that he said in John chapter 7. Now, there is a difference between John 7 and John 8, and that is that the response that Jesus gives in this section is longer, it is more explicit, and it is more emphatic than what we saw in chapter 7 where it bounced back and forth a couple of times. So let me read this portion of the Word of God for us. I'll begin the reading at verse 12 of John 8. This is the Word of God. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet... Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you would die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, 
then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, praise God, many believed in him. This is a dizzying passage. It was dizzying for the first people who heard it, and maybe for you, even as you listen to it right now. May the Lord give us clarity as we hear these words, as we think through these words, because it is indeed a high-stakes debate that is going on here. Let me pray for us. And so, Lord, we come and ask that your words would not skip off of our minds, but instead it would be a seed that is planted deep within us and that grows nourished by you and by your grace and by the working of your spirit bears fruit in our lives, our lives individually, our lives as family, our lives as this particular body gathered together. Help us. Help us to understand. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, do you like to debate? There's a question. It's kind of debate season. Do you like to debate? Did you grow up in a household that liked to debate? I grew up in one of those households where we would debate anything and everything that we possibly could. Frankly, I don't enjoy it as much as I used to, but there it was. That was the root. Uh, some debates are just for fun, right? You might have discussions about uh, what was the best sports team ever in history, uh, who was the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Uh, people spend a lot of time and make a lot of money debating those things on TV for people to watch, who was the greatest of all time, and the questions circle and go round and round. Uh, there were debates in the building committee we debated all sorts of things, what kind of floors we should have, what kind of window coverings we should have, what kind of carpets, what kind of colors, what kind of bathrooms. We debated all sorts of things, and there were then little decisions that we had to make. Sometimes we debate about things that uh, are important issues, but we, in and of ourselves, might not be able to affect the outcome in any particular way. So uh, we have a debate about an issue, but we actually don't have anything to do with the issue. And at other times, some people debate in a high-stakes kind of debate, the candidates who are now uh, running at least in the Democratic Party, they debate on issues, and, and those issues and the things about which they speak could be significant. The outcome of those things could be significant for the citizens of the country, and the debate process in and of itself is high stakes, of course, for the candidates. If you do poorly in a debate, you're probably out at this point. If you do well, you continue to the next round of the debating. But in our passage today, we have got a debate set before us, and it is indeed a high-stakes debate. There are issues in this debate that are issues of life and death. And in general, here's the question, and it of course goes all throughout the Gospel of John, are the claims that Jesus makes about himself valid or not? That's the question. And we know that on an earthly level, the stakes are high. Uh, we saw back in chapter 7 uh, last week 
that in the air was, was the whole question of arrest. Uh, are they going to arrest Jesus? Are the people who are going to come or who have come to arrest him, are they going to do that now? And that continues to be the case in the passage that is before us today. John notes in the middle of uh, what I read for us that they didn't arrest him even though he was having this debate in the context of the temple and the, in the place of the treasury, they didn't arrest him at this particular point. And as we saw last week in chapter 7, so we will see at the end of this chapter, not today, the stakes are in fact not only a matter of arrest, which would be high enough for some of us, the stakes are life and death because Jesus had said last week, you are trying to kill me. And at the end of this chapter, after the protestations, who's trying to kill you? Stones are in the hand seeking to kill him. You're trying to kill me. Life and death is at stake. But the reality is, as Jesus speaks of these things in the same way that he talks about uh, where I'm from and where I'm going, Jesus is not even only thinking about earthly stakes, the earthly stakes that might be arrest, that might even be death in this world. Instead, what Jesus posits is that what is on the line in this debate is actually eternal stakes. There are eternal stakes regarding this debate. And so he tries to wake up his hearers to the reality of those eternal stakes, telling them that, listen, on the one hand, on the one side of this, you have got light and life and truth. On the other, you have got death and darkness and falsehood. And you've got to choose between those two. You've got to judge wisely between those two the very presence of Jesus forces it upon them. You, you can't ignore it. And not only his presence, but his impending departure. I am going away. I am leaving you. It impresses the time of the judgment upon them. We have to judge the validity of the claims that he is making. So in this particular section, the particular claim is laid out for us right in the very beginning of it, right? I am the light of the world. Now, I'm not a light. I'm not like a light. I'm not enlightening. I'm not light in the sense of you light up my life kind of light. I am the life. And the statement is, in and of itself, definitive. It is exclusive. And therefore, to the Jewish leaders who are surrounding him, who are listening to him make that claim, in the context of the temple, it is offensive to hear someone speak like that. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, or if you recall back, this is now the second of the great I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. The first was back in chapter 6, when he says, I am the bread of life. And throughout these three chapters in particular, John 6, John 7, and John 8, 
not only Jesus, but John, as he compiles these things for us, seems to have before him the idea of the wilderness. Okay, that was true back in John chapter 6 in the context of the Passover, and now in 7 and 8 in the context of the Feast of the Booths or the Tabernacles, a harvest feast, but also hearkening back to the Passover. In John 6, you had the bread of life, equivalent to the manna that God provided in the wilderness. In John 7, you had the promise of water and of living water. That was also, of course, part of the time that was in the wilderness and God providing water for his people. And now in John chapter 8, you have, I am the light of the world, the pillar of fire that leads the people. I am the light of the world. Now, also in the context of this particular feast, the Feast of the Booths, there was a time in that feast wherein there was a, a lighting ceremony and candles were lit up. And the historical reports that we have uh, from that time are that Jerusalem itself was illuminated by the light that was coming from the temple, perhaps. Perhaps with that in the air, with that in mind, Jesus makes this statement, making it all the more clear that he fulfills these things, I am the light of the world. And he sets forth not only that declaration, but he sets forth the stakes with equal clarity, right? And, and again, it's the two sides. If you believe that and follow me, you will have the light of life. If you believe that I am the light of the world, you will have the light of life. If, on the other hand, if you don't, it can't really be said stronger than it is in verses 21 and 24. If you don't believe that declaration, you will die in your sin. And in case they didn't get it, he repeats it three times in this section. You will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. Now, those are high-stakes debates that are going on right there. When the one you're debating says, you either believe what I say or you will die in your sin. Jesus is picking up here a phrase out of the Old Testament particularly, but not exclusively, out of the prophetic literature. And as it is used both in the Old Testament and as it is used by Jesus here, it is the worst thing that could that could happen to a person. There isn't anything worse than dying, and it could be translated in your sin or for your sins. It is a death that is unatoned for, uncovered by any kind of blood, uncovered by any kind of forgiveness. And the weight and the judgment of sin rests upon the person. That's the claim then. Those are the stakes. Let the debate begin, okay? You're the light of the world. Okay, let's debate whether or not Jesus is, in fact, the light of the world. But be warned, you better judge well. You better judge well when you hear this debate. So what I want to follow here then just for a few minutes is the structure, the, the objection and the questions that are raised by the opponents of Jesus in this particular section. Immediately we'll see an objection that is raised to him making that statement. And then there are two questions. One, where's your father? And 
the, the, the third point, the second question that I'm talking about right now is the same one from last week. Who are you? Okay, so that's, let's, let's work our way through this with uh, allowing those who are questioning Jesus to do that. Okay, so he makes the claim, I'm the light of the world. And immediately, there are those who object. Verse 13, so the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. I object. Now, this is obviously not a formal courtroom here in this sense, and yet this is all kind of courtroom language of witnesses and testimonies and judgment that's going on here. I object to the testimony that is given. I object to it not only in the content of the testimony that is being given, I object to it in the way that it is given because it is being given about oneself and coming from that very person, regardless of the comment, uh, regardless of the content, it's not true. It's not valid. It can't be valid. The law, and Jesus himself refers to this in just a moment, the law of God, and we could turn to it, we won't right now, but the law of God required that in serious cases, in cases of murder or other serious cases, there be at least two witnesses in order to determine the truth of a matter. And earlier, and I know it's been a while since we looked at this, but earlier in chapter 5, therefore, Jesus recognizing that same principle and in a discussion that sounds a lot like this one, Jesus in chapter 5 brings forth other witnesses. In chapter 5, when Jesus is talking about witnesses and drawing them out, he says there's the witness, for example, of John the Baptist. John the Baptist bore witness to me. The scriptures bear witness to me. And the works that I am doing, they all bear witness to me. So Jesus is fully aware of what the scriptures require, there to be multiple witnesses to determine the veracity of something that is said. And he's willing to do that for their sake in John chapter 5. But here, when we get to John chapter 7, while acknowledging that self-testimony is not the norm, he insists that it is proper and right and necessary for him to give self-testimony. In many cases it wouldn't be, but in my case, when I give you self-testimony, that is right and it is proper, as reason, reasoning is provided. First of all, first of all, he says, the reason I can give testimony about myself is that I know the truth. I know the truth. And, and it's the questions from last week. I know the truth. I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. And you don't. <laughs> you don't know the truth. I do know the truth, and therefore my testimony is valid because I actually know what is true. And in contrast to that, they don't know what is true. Right? That's the point that he's making. I actually have the truth on my side in this debate, and you guys cannot figure it out at all. You don't know where I came from, and you don't know where I 
am going. The law requires that there be two witnesses. Why does the law require that there be two witnesses? Well, it's obvious because our knowledge is limited. We're often wrong. We're not only wrong and not only have limited knowledge, but we're biased. If evil at work within us, and so the law requires of fallible witnesses that there be two of us. But it wouldn't have mattered how many of the Pharisees you got together and said, where did I come from and where am I going? Jesus is saying, all of you would have had the wrong answer to that question. I, on the other hand, have the truth. I know the answer to those questions, and that is why I am a valid witness. Jesus says, when you explore the answer to that question, where did I come from, where am I going, you continue to think about it on the earthly level. Remember last week, Jesus said, don't judge by appearances. Here he says, you judge by the flesh. And what do they come up with when they then try and figure out the answer to those questions? Well, we know where he's from. He's from Galilee. Oh, well, well we know where he's going. And, and last week, it's maybe to the diaspora. And this week, they come up with, well, maybe he's going to kill himself. Maybe that's where he's actually going that we cannot go. And so Jesus, in responding to them, says, that's the way that you judge. I don't judge that way. And by the way, that's the meaning of the phrase there, because otherwise you're all twisted up in this passage. When he says, I judge no one, what he is saying is, I don't judge anyone the way you judge other people. You judge just based on the flesh. Your judgment is often errant. Mine's never errant. Mine's always true. Mine's always perfect. Mine is always correct. He judges. He testifies with perfect clarity. And therefore, he can make that bold statement that you find in verse 18 in light of this. I am, it's another I am for you, I am the one who bears witness about myself. I can do it. You can't do it. I, though, am the one who bears witness about myself. Circularity of argumentation is appropriate for Jesus because of who he is. He doesn't have to go someplace else to make that statement. He can make it because he is, I am. And I am the one, therefore, who can bear witness about myself. But there's one more thing, of course, related to this objection. His testimony is true because he came from his father, the father, the one who is truth, and his father testifies to the truthfulness of what the son says as well. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. My father knows the truth, and I came from my father. So though the singular testimony of Jesus is utterly true, he says, there is, so you are aware, another witness. And the other witness is 
my Father. Now let's step outside of this passage for just a moment. There are any number of places that we could go to ask, what's the testimony then of the Father about the one of whom we speak? What's the testimony of the Father? Let's just take two places. Let's take his baptism and the transfiguration. What's the testimony of the Father? This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. That's the testimony of the Father about this man, about this Son, confirming, A, his identity. This is my Son. This is the beloved Son. B, confirming his testimony. Listen to him. The Father affirms and confirms, verifies the testimony of the Son. Listen to what he says. Now, okay, so we just, we just came out of this scene and into those just to remind ourselves of that. But of course, if you're sitting there in the middle of this scene, this is what leads to the next logical question, right? Where's your Father? Okay, if your father's going to confirm the things that you have just said, where is he? Show us the father. Now, of course, the word father can be used in lots of ways, right? You can mean your literal father, your actual father. Uh, For me, it could mean, or for others, it could mean your stepfather uh, when you're talking about that. Uh, You could talk about fathers in general, as the, the, the Jews often did in Scripture, our fathers who went before us, the patriarchs, right? Uh, sometimes even in a, a, a PCA general assembly, you'll address the assembly fathers and brothers uh, and address that for those who are older than you are, and then those who are contemporary to fathers and brothers. And, and of course, if you were Jewish, and the, the, the passage will go here as well, you could be talking about one other person in particular, namely Abraham, right? right? That's the other one you could mean when you're talking about father, and that, that will come along in this passage. Go ahead. Where, then, is your father? But the nature of this question shows on their part not merely ignorance, and this is important, Instead, it shows a willful and culpable obstinance. Ignorance. When Jesus is confronted by ignorance, by people who are humble and just don't know and just don't understand, he teaches them. He shows them. He instructs them. However, when he is confronted by obstinance, he meets it with confrontation. He calls it out. He calls out exactly what it is. The Pharisees are professing to know God and to be able to evaluate not only God but the Messiah and and to be able to evaluate who Jesus is from the outside. I can objectively say who you are, where you're from, where you're going. But as we saw last week, doing that from the outside won't do. You have to want to do God's will before you are enabled to understand. You can't understand and then want to do God's will. You have to want to do God's will first and then be informed and understand. And so Jesus says, okay, I'm going to confront you with two realities. 
two realities to this question, where is my father? The first is going to make your head spin. The first is the eternal equality that I, Jesus, share with my father. If you knew me, you would know him. I have come from him. I've come from above where I have always dwelt with him. And Jesus' point here isn't so much just to separate earth and heaven, although that helps in framing the discussion. It's to say, I come from the one who is truth. I come from the one who is light. You dwell in the land of rebellion and darkness. I come from him. You come from here. We've already heard from him, I am the light of the world, and I am the one who testifies, but the I am's continue to come from him. In verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are not of this world, I am not. You are of this world, pardon me. I am not of this world. And then verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, the he that is supplied, at least in your ESV versions, is supplied there. It's not actually there. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That you are that you are the living one, that you are the eternally existent one. That's how Jesus is identifying himself. I am. Now, that's one reality. But there's a second to this. And that is, as the eternally existing I am, he has entered into this world as the perfectly obedient son. Son of God and Son of Man, and as the now incarnate Son of God, Son of Man, He does what they don't. This is the contrast that He's setting up here. I do, as the Son, what you don't, as an incarnate man, which is to say, I perfectly submit to my Father perfectly submit to him. Specifically, I speak the words the Father has given to me. The things that come out of my mouth, the testimony that I give to you, they are words that have been given to me by the Father, by my Father. That is what I am speaking to you. And secondly, I only do things that are pleasing to him. In my words and in my actions, I do what the Father wants me to do. That's the foundation of this. I do what the Father wants me to do. I do, in other words, the will of God. Thy will be done is the mantle that is across the life of the incarnate Son of God. Your will be done. And so both as the eternal Son of God and as the incarnate Son of God, Son of Man, he knows the Father, and the Father knows him.
which brings us back to the question of questions. If you were standing there, if you were a leader, and, and, and you were listening to somebody say something like that or speak in that way, you would say, who are you? Where do you get off speaking to us like that? Tell us, if you will. Who are you? In verse 28, Jesus takes us back to something that we saw in chapter 7. Jesus says to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Lop off the he for a moment. Then you will know that I am. Well, that's kind of puzzling. Wait, when... This is obviously a reference to the cross, right? When you've killed me, you'll know I am? That seems the very inverse of what I am means. The living one, the existing one. When you kill me, you'll know I am. Yep. Yep. It's only through my death. It's only through the cross. It's only through the crucifixion of our Lord by which Jesus is finally known, through which Jesus is finally and fully revealed. Because there, there, the will of God, his Father, and his perfect submission to the will of his Father will be on full display. Then you'll see it. I can tell you about it right now. I can testify to it right now. You will see it. You will know it on that day when I am lifted up. You'll know. And you will know either unto your salvation or your judgment. There won't be ambiguity and here this is a collective day that Jesus is talking about. There won't be a lack of clarity. You will know. And you will be judged accordingly unto life, or you will die in your sins. So let's come back to the beginning. So where is the debater of this age? Have you been in Sunday school? First Corinthians chapter 1. Where is the debater of this age, asks the Apostle Paul. You see, if we think we can debate with God, with Jesus, if, if we think we can figure it out, if we think we can on our own stand outside of the Bible and say, listen, I'm going to consider all things, I'm going to consider all philosophies, I've got to step back out from the Bible, from who Jesus says he is, I've got to step outside of that to try and figure things out here and come to a conclusion. Here's the conclusion, not said by your pastor, but said by the light of the world, you will die in your sins. If that's the approach you take, if you want to step outside and rest on your wisdom, your ability, your skills at debating, your self-analytical abilities, if you want to do that, 
you will die in your sins. It's like trying to lift something heavy out of the water when you can't stand on the bottom. If, I, if you're in the water, you're treading water, it's 12, 12 feet deep, and I throw you a 50-pound bag of rocks and say, lift it back up to me, what happens? You sink. You sink because you've got no place to stand. If you go outside of Jesus to try and say, well, let me figure out who this one is, this so-called light of the world. If you go outside of him, you sink. You have to come inside. You have to come inside. It's not revealed in any other way. In order to understand who he is. Light, in a sense, bears witness to itself. Though every other object in the world requires light to bear witness to itself, light always illuminates, is never illuminated. A quote from a commentary. For light cannot but attest to its own presence. Otherwise put, it bears witness to itself. Listen, if you want to try to stand over here and examine the light and you've got a flashlight and you want to shine your flashlight on the light, your spotlight on the light, I went to the dentist this week, you know, they got the light that, that they shine right down upon you so that they can see. If you want to shine any kind of light to try and examine the one who is the light, forget it. Light bears witness to itself. It self-testifies. And its claims are legitimate because of who he is. That's the question. Who is he? Do you want to debate? Be careful if you want to debate. It would be better in front of the burning bush, in front of the light of the world, it would be better just to take off your sandals, to go prostrate, because it's holy ground when you're standing in front of the one who is the light of the world. And if you take off your sandals, the light won't blind you, but it will give you life. May we, perhaps you're here today, and you're not sure about Jesus, may this be the day that we join the people who, I think surprisingly, in the end of the section that I read in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. May we join those people, or for that matter, may we join those who, after he was lifted up, heard the proclamation, this one, this Jesus, whom you crucified, God made to be both Lord and Christ, and they repented and they believed and said, what must we do to be saved? May we join that number. The warning is clear, and the living one proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light of life, illuminate us. Expel the darkness that resides within us. And help us to live for you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us.
we would be most lost without it. And we pray in your great name. Amen.